0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts Dr. Miranda Melcher and I'm really excited because I have with me Dr. Matt Kennedy to tell us all about his just published book from Manchester University Press titled The Imperial Commonwealth: Australia and the Project of Empire 1867 to 1914 which as those dates suggests tells the story from the late 1800s to the early 1900s of how Australian settler colonists, mobilised their particular settler experience to develop their own vision of what empire was and could be, both within the territorial confines of what we know today as Australia, the country, and beyond that, um, both within kind of the physical side of things, of land and people as well as what does this mean within the wider context of the British Empire. So this book adds a whole bunch to a bunch of different understandings of empire and settler colonialism. Um, so, Matt, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Well, yes, it's, uh, it's my very great pleasure.
0: I'm so glad. Before we get into your book, though, could you give us a bit of an introduction of yourself and explain why you decided to write this?
1: Uh, of course, yes, and in fact, the the two questions are um, in a way kind of related. Um, so, as as Miranda mentioned, my name is Matt Kennedy. I um, currently see myself as an international and colonial historian, um, and I suppose what that means is that I do a lot of research into uh, go- governance and governmentality of the emerging authorities that together created this kind of global system of colonialism and international imperial order in general. Um, I've, I've done a lot of looking into uh, settler governments um, and then also practices of international governance, either through international institutions like the League of Nations or even through kind of transcolonial colonial um, norms that developed in the late 1900s uh, or late 1800s, excuse me, in early uh, 20th century um, that effectively founded a lot of the doctrines of international governance as we know them today, or at least that's what I think. Um, I, um, that's, I guess I should stop there. That's how I describe myself now. And I think largely I arrive at that description because of my work on this book. Um, I um, When I started this book, I, I wouldn't necessarily have described myself thus, um, <laughs> mostly because I felt that I kind of had to become uh, an expert in these different fields, um, or at least literate in these different fields, and um, Mostly because I, I really needed to, for my own sake, answer the question of what did empire actually mean to settlers and settlers in Australia in particular. Um, so I, I feel like I started this project in my mind, at least, you know, in the late um, uh, 2000 aughts and early uh, 2010s, um, which was a very exciting time to be looking into this. There's tons of literature coming out about these kinds of questions. Um you know, new imperial history was was really getting going and Catherine's, Catherine Hall's work had kind of blown open the distinctions between what had, in my mind at least, been previously sort of siloed uh, domains of looking at kind of a domestic settler colonial experience and then looking at a imperial uh, relationship and mostly with Britain. Um, but it's because of, of that kind of milieu that um, I grew up in, I was kind of trained in at that time, that I started to look, well... Uh, maybe we need to, you know, contribute to a more dedicated decentering of this Anglo-Australian relationship to really understand what empire meant um, to a lot of these settlers in Australia. Um, and of course, you know, as I came to discover, uh, as I went about trying to answer that question for myself, um, lots of other people were already working in that in that field, and it was really wonderful to, um, to feel like, you know, I was kind of contributing to those wider efforts to, you know, disinter empire, disinter even the metropolitan aspect of empire and look at the regional interconnectivity and even international connectivity between all these spaces. Um, But even still, I I felt like there wasn't a single book that really tried to tackle that question. Um, And so with lots of generous guidance um, from mentors and colleagues, I decided to, to try um, in part, you know, to, contribute to the discussion in part to satisfy my own curiosity and and here i am now i now arguably you know this this isn't the book that's done it um and uh we'll we'll see we'll let readers decide that i suppose but um for for me at least it's uh it's answered one of the questions that i feel like i've had for um i don't know about a decade and a half and and hopefully it will go some way to answering similar questions that other people have too
0: i always think that good books come from kind of going hang on a second I don't quite know the answer to this. I'm going to go poke at this. And you end up being like, oh, wait, now I know all about this. Now I know about this. Oh, okay. Um, And ideally, you get an answer. um, And perhaps ideally, from my point of view, that answer comes in the form of a book, and then I can ask you about it. Um, So thank you for taking us through that sort of development and evolution of this. And I'd love to kind of first poke, I suppose, at one of the things you've mentioned, the idea of kind of getting in the mindsets of Australian um, settlers, because you have this really evocative phrase used throughout the book. And I'm wondering if you can take us through what you mean by, quote, the political cosmology of empire. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm uh, I'm really thrilled that you asked this question. And um, would you believe it's, it's not the first time uh, that I've been asked this? Um, I feel like uh, pretty much every uh, juncture of proposing the work um this uh, this has been one of the first questions um and uh, I, I i relish that i think it's really wonderful um because it's it's been one of those conceptual apparatus that i've had with me i think throughout this whole uh throughout this whole journey um i suppose to describe the term very um mechanistically it's um it, it's an adaptation uh of a concept uh from astronomy um Cosmology is the study uh, of the evolution of these kind of apparently immutable forces of physical reality and um, and how they constitute um, the universe as as we know it, or rather how they've come to constitute the universe as we as we know it today. Um, I kind of grafted um, the adjective political on there to signal my interest in the kind of development of understandings of power relations in human systems um, to that. Uh, to that lens. And so, uh, as I hope is starting to become clear, it's an effort to suggest that, um, as you say, you know, accessing these mentalities, you know, beneath these kind of very conscious political beliefs um, of late 19th century settler thought, um, there was this more or less shared set of assumptions uh, about what kinds of things people and societies could actually do, the kind of realm of possibilities within the political or the social realms. Um And for me, I've always, uh, when I have approached this question, I've always uh, attempted um, to try to find a way to access these kinds of more, um, I guess I would characterize them as, on the one hand, more genuine beliefs, um, based not necessarily on a kind of political ideological framework, but more of a just understanding the world around you kind of framework, these kind of immutable historical logics Uh, of human life that a lot of people sort of lived their lives according to at the time. Um, Now, I I suppose, you know, there's a pathway to arriving at that term uh, and an empirical one at that. I think it was suggested to me, or at least, you know, the need to account for those kinds of phenomena was suggested to me really from the archive itself. Um, As uh, readers might um, pick up on one uh, as they're reading the book, an important part of my research was investigating this kind of, you know, social intellectual archive uh, of everyday ideas, I guess you could say. Um, at least, you know, everyday ideas held by a certain segment of various colonial populations. Um, so, you know, think sources like newspapers or pamphlets or books, but then also the kind of odd ephemera Of late 19th century life like you know speculative fiction, um, entertainment programs, uh, letters written to statesmen by school children that an archivist fortunately for us saved uh, and cataloged or dinner cards with handwritten notes on them I presume because somebody asked them to give an impromptu toast or something like that. Um, And I guess what I saw in those sources um, was that there were just so many facets of life at that time ranging from the very serious to really the I guess we could categorize them as more human interests. Um, They were all related in some way uh, to the logics of a world in which uh, empire was a kind of normalized form of human endeavor. Um, Now, of course, ideologies of empire um, were also crucial to constructing this political cosmology. And I discuss this in the book, too. It's very important to realize that these cosmologies they're models right they're not actual descriptions of reality and of course models are as much a function of ideological considerations as they are of you know genuine efforts to understand the world but i felt it was really important to emphasize that you know for a lot of these settlers the imperial experience that they were born into was really a kind of a schema of life as they knew it um and you know I, I feel like this is often forgotten. These schemas were being confirmed by historians and, and public intellectuals of the day, uh, whose work increasingly involved, um, instead of telling the stories of kings and queens and all of that, you know, telling the stories of peoples, telling the stories of, of, of great states and charting their trajectories. Um, so everywhere people looked, they found this political cosmology Uh, of empire reinforced by public authorities, by intellectual authorities, um, by daily life um, to a large extent. And it's it's overall my contention in kind of articulating this concept and basing analysis around it that it really was, you know, the shared political cosmology of empire as much as many other things that led settlers you know, really to see no reason to question empire as a social or political formation even if they could be quite critical of imperialism. Um, And I think it's important to make that distinction too. And the book tries to tease that out further because, you know, we see these moments where imperial ideologues, mostly from London begin making appeals for certain kinds of actions um, using the language of empire, using this kind of rhetorical um, motivation to support empire and all of that. And and that met with, uh, with rather mixed results, um, so, you know, again, what I mean here is that not everybody was a proponent of, of doing empire, um, and really quite the opposite. And I think largely because settlers could criticize practi- practices of empire because of this conceptual apparatus that uh, was entailed in a political cosmology of empire. Um, So anyway, I think it's a useful concept. I think it allowed me to access these kind of interesting contours. And I think a lot of the argument of the book really hinges on teasing these two apart. You know, there's a thing that is empire, and then there is the practice of doing empire. Um, And in the context of a federating and expanding settler society, I think, you know, that uh, the conflict between those two ideas, and often it was a conflict, really, um, gets teased out and, and lots of different ways that um, that I, uh, I found it quite worthwhile to explore.
0: Thank you for justifying, among other things, why I started with that question, right? It opens <laughs> up so many things for it us really to talk about. Might. Yes. Um, so one of the things I'd love to ask you about based off of that is, as you said, kind of the overall schema is not questioned, but things within it can be. And one that seems to be, under discussion right there's many different ways it can be taken throughout um, what you examine in the book is what it means to Australians to be an imperial citizen what that was what that counted as can you walk us through some of these conceptions and to what extent these changed over time
1: of course yes and I think you know at this point you know we've gone so far without mentioning uh race and I think this is a really opportune moment to do it um because you know, in the late 19th century, of course, race was becoming more and more um, of a kind of scientific concept, I guess you could say, um, used by a lot of social scientists, including a lot of colonial social scientists um, and historians, again, including colonial historians, uh, but then also by biologists, med- medical doctors, um, even government statisticians um, are uh, readily using this concept to kind of categorize humanity, I guess you could say. Um, And, you know, at the time, I think it's, it's very easy to forget that race um, was seen as a very modern scientific concept. It was an, I I almost said exciting. It was, um, you know, it was a, it was a powerful thing. It was one of the things that a lot of social, social scientists pointed to when they argued that they had kind of solved society in a way. Um, And all kinds of, uh, practices of understanding um, how to govern, where to govern, what institutions to govern through um, were sort of based on these understandings. Um, and indeed, so was individual identity. Um, and I think, again, kind of stepping back and taking uh, another look at what political cosmological points of view had to offer individuals, um, it was a means of kind of relating very individual, very discreet, very singular lives to these very, very large phenomenon, you know, the rise and fall of states, um, and of course, in in nineteenth century terms, at least the uh, uh, the lives um, and trajectories of different groups of people categorized um, into races. Um, so we see here that, um, or at least I argue here, that citizenship was a really um, important way of kind of formalizing some of those ideas, especially in settler states. Um, and we look at the the evolution of this kind of uh, notion of, uh, of race as a determinant of belonging, I think as, uh, at least in part, a function of the development of the particular forms of citizenship that arose in a lot of these settler states. And I would argue that they took a, a, a kind of slightly... Uh, different turn uh, than a similar kind of practice or institution in European or metropolitan states, largely because, you know, in Europe, uh, constructing belonging, it, um, it it tended, I think, uh, to favor uh, th- considerations more like political status or family prestige, as well as race. Whereas in colonial contexts, race became a kind of primary uh, determinant of this kind of um, mode of belonging Um, and i think that's borne out in a lot of literature that looks at uh, the kind of somewhat progressive but also you know very kind of racially centric um, creations of citizenship statuses across a lot of colonial places a lot of um, uh, western u.s states that you know had kind of frontier experience and i don't think it's an accident that citizenship um, specifically these kind of racialized conceptions of citizenship developed first in these places. Um, in Australia in particular too, because you have uh, the connection with uh, the um, the British world, um, you uh, you see um, a lot of these conversations uh, that are happening in London kind of flow into colonial spaces but then again be adapted. And so you see a lot of you know Greek and Roman neologisms that um, in addition to being coded of course with racial language they're also coded with these kind of you know romanticized visions of you know political equality um, these romanticized visions um, in some cases of military service um, and again you see those being imported into law um, and reinforced by public discourse and again by by scholars um, and so when you kind of lift your head up you know in the Uh, 1880s and 1890s and take yourself out of this kind of soup of discourse you see a vision of citizenship um, developing in the Australian settler colonies um, that uh, on the one hand um, it's it's quite inclusive because um, it does go to great lengths to include everybody who uh, is understood to be, you know, kind of white European and specifically white British stock. But at the same time, it's quite powerfully exclusive um, in that it's only reserved for people of a particular race, according to these cosmological assumptions. Um, But even, you know, within this category, uh, we see a division between uh, people who are thought to be, quote unquote, the kind of right uh, racial type um, and people who are thought to be not necessarily of the right racial type. And that, I think, is where empire gets layered onto this. We see later on in efforts um, to create um, colonial uh, administrations in Papua um, that a lot of Australian colonial officials are thinking about uh, this kind of model of citizenship, which is due to all white colonial subjects, but then also citizenship plus the kind of responsibility and the authority to govern which is due only to a certain portion um, of white uh, subjects in or white citizens rather in the Australian colonies so it's a complicated thing and it evolves in lots of different ways but I think it's connected to all of these uh, all of these trends that we see and of course refracted through the very unique kind of settler colonial experience as well.
0: So I'd love to pick up on something as we explore this complexity further that you mentioned kind of almost offhand as if this is normal and it's not and fascinating. So I want to kind of highlight it. Um, the idea that something happens and then it's confirmed by sort of public discourse and then it goes into law, right? Rather than the law happens, the law draws the lines and make the makes the categories and then that has sort of trickled down effects. Um, from that perspective, one of the things that I found the most fascinating from all of these instances in the book, was how the, quote, imperial individual, in some senses, became elevated in law at the expense of the colonial state, which I admit is not a conflict that I had necessarily expected to find in this book. Can you take us through what is happening here?
1: Well, yes, and and to be honest, I wasn't expecting that either. I think a lot of the literature that um that I had read preparing to do the research um for this book had suggested that, you know, there there were very clearly defined um sort of hierarchies um in across all of these imperial spaces, and that you know to a large extent colonial states, for example, you know, colonial governments in South Australia, New South Wales. You know, they they did have a degree of, of autonomy that was more or less recognized across the imperial system and, and vice versa. Those governments um, attempted within some reason, at least to steer clear of the kind of, you know, the imperial government um, and the powers that it had reserved to itself through this kind of, you know, unwritten but unfolding um, constitution of the broader British imperial state. Um you know, when when I was doing research, though, I, I came across so many instances where it became very clear to me that um, that as, so long as settlers uh, acted as individuals, say, and not with the public authority um, of their states, and so long as it was in imperial interests uh, to do so, uh, there was very considerable latitude granted to such people who wanted to do things um, that uh, were, you know, well beyond the established boundaries, constitutional boundaries, legal boundaries um, of what colonial states could actually permit them to do, and perhaps even were expressly prohibited in imperial statutes, um, so long as it contributed to this wider project um, of empire and specifically of maintaining British imperial power. Um, And, you know, I'd seen so many of these instances that at one point I had even titled um, the, the thesis that this work is, uh, is loosely based on uh, recolonizing citizenship, because I feel like, you know, the process was such a ubiquitous, or the phenomenon rather was so ubiquitous that it really did seem like because of, again, because of these political cosmologies of empire that so many people in Australia, so many settlers in Australia, at least had grown up with, um, they were kind of allowed to fudge it a little bit. They were allowed to, you know, do things that the law said, no, you probably shouldn't be able to do um, in order to participate um, in imperial endeavors. Um, and where I think that um, comes at the expense of the colonial state is that it, it very uh, clearly erodes uh, colonial jurisdictions in favor of activating uh, a kind of metaphorical uh, civic participation in the imperial world instead of in the colonial world. And I think a lot of colonial officials uh, saw this and were many were alarmed by it. Um, But few uh, were dedicated enough to pursue a kind of opposition to it, um, that uh, it essentially just became an accepted part um, of life in certain domains. And I'm thinking here, there's an example that always comes to mind um, the emergence of, uh, of volunteerism um, during this time. Uh, settlers from Australian colonies, for example, deciding for a variety of reasons, um, including a feeling of uh, racial duty, I suppose we have good records of that, to, uh, to travel to faraway imperial battlefields instead of staying at home. Um, and this practice, you know, as the book, certain chapters of the book um, discuss it it emerged essentially out of these kind of settler solidarity movements, um, which were, you know, more permissible, I guess you could say, from a legal point of view. Um, I think it's easy to forget that, you know, the 19th century world was characterized by considerable mobility, even though it might have taken longer to get to certain places. People were moving um, across these imperial zones um, fairly regularly. Um, But, you know, As conflicts erupted in places across empire, um, settler volunteerism, uh, the practice of it, you know, it it became so ubiquitous to, in some cases, be expected. We see Australian settlers getting together, forming voluntary expeditions to go to Southern Africa in the First Anglo Boer War, for example, or uh, more famously to Sudan, where um, settlers are sent as part of an organized, um, you know, public uh, military force, um, and then to Burma, and then to India, and then, of course, back to South Africa during the South African War, and then to China um, as well. Um, so this practice again became more and more kind of common, more and more legitimized. And again, you know, colonial states had no powers to send armed forces to war. Those prerogatives and powers were still very much in the hands of the crown, and this was, you know, a point. Of all constitutional points this was probably one of the most well-established in law at that time um, but especially with the sudan expedition you know new south wales sends a volunteer contingent of about 500 people uh from the citizen forces and using public funds um and then when they arrived too late you know they offered to send them to india you know these 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 uh these uh uh, there, there's a conflict created here. You know, the the law says colonial states don't have the power to do this, but imperial interests kind of overrule a lot of these considerations. And so you have this odd case where these 500 uh, settlers um, in Sudan are polled individually, and they sign on individually uh, to be sent to India Um and this, you know, opens a loophole that continues to be exploited throughout the late 19th century and early 20th century. And, you know, it's clearly the Australian colonies and eventually the Commonwealth that loses by this uh, kind of latter day statutory neglect. I mean, after all, it's this uh, it's this um, precedent that allows the kind of sustained erosion of colonial powers over their own subjects or citizens Um that leads to the assumption, for example, in the First World War that Australia just will be at war once the British government decides uh, to enter the conflict. Um, and there's really wonderful literature uh, written about this. And I think primarily of, of Henry Reynolds' Unnecessary Wars. You know, there's this there's this notion that when it comes to military service and imperial defense and all of that, um, you know, Australians have uh, have historically uh always kind of voted in one sense or another to support uh british or imperial interests um and uh, you know they did did so naively and i think these kinds of accounts and henry reynolds arguments uh specifically really you know give the lie to that um to that narrative you know there's it 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 was it was born of many things, this kind of digger myth, I guess you could say, but it was certainly not born of naivety. And in fact, it was born, in my mind, uh, out of, you know, complicity of these colonial governments to let this uh, narrative take hold. Um, and one reason why, of course, is um, imperial defense considerations. But another you know, reason, of course, is this kind of common assumption that um, was operating at the time that, you know, the, um, the British world is held together in part, at least from a settler colonial perspective, by racial solidarity, um, and I think there's much more to be said on both of those uh, accounts here. But um, but yes, there's uh, there's obviously a lot of interest in this question too. I feel like recently with um, Australian policy towards um, the uh, the Asia Pacific world, I think you know this is one of those considerations that's left a very long legacy in Australia's defense policy and Australia's. Um, foreign affairs and all of that too. We could discuss that further. um it's a it's a topic that probably will have no end in our lifetime. So
0: <laughs> probably not. um of the many examples you mentioned in that last answer, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about one of them, um because I think that, Obviously, I'm making some amount of judgment here, but some of the examples I think might be slightly better known than others. Um, So I'd love to highlight one that perhaps is a little bit less known, but speaks to something you mentioned right at the beginning, the sort of regional aspects within the British Empire. Um, Australians in India, you talk about in the book that there's a whole bunch of things going on in the 1870s, and then in the 1890s, and they don't really look the same. So... Can you take us through kind of what we're, what's happening in the 70s, what's happening in the 90s, and how we can understand the change in Australia's relationship to China, to India?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I, I think there's very, very dramatic changes um, in that relationship between those two periods of time. And um, and thankfully, I think this relationship has, uh, it's, um, it's garnered a lot more attention um, recently. Well, I say recently, over the past 15 years, I think scholars are really, you know, driving... Um, it's a really, really important historical investigations in, in that direction. Um, you know, in, in general, I hate to reduce it down to one thing, but if I had to choose, I, I really think it's um, the emerging kind of imperial information space um, that is taking hold um, in the 1870s, and certainly by the 1890s is, is very established. Um, a lot of um, imperial communications um, are. Um, communications networks are are created. Um, you know, the, the telegraph was, was very new in the 1870s. There were some very regional telegraphic systems that, of course, in 1872, there's the great overland telegraph project that connected um, South Australia to the wider sort of imperial network, as it were, um, and thus on, in fact, to London. Um, but, you know, it, it was still very... Uh, emergent, I guess, in the 1870s, and so a lot of the information that was flowing, I think, between India and Australia was flowing through um, intermediaries. Um, there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of interest, but I think primarily that interest, um, as as far as settlers were concerned, um, you know, it uh, again, it it was uh, it was mediated through like missionary activities, for example, or official reports that um, might appear in newspapers, um, and occasionally there would be. Um, Indian officials um, who would, say, retire to the colonies um, or uh, more executive officers and governors who would have come from India or places administered by the Indian Empire um, to Australia. And there would be conduits of information flows there. Um, and trade, of course, is a, is a common thing. Um, at this time, there's a lot of inter-regional trade um, going on. But, you know, the, the narrative, I feel like, and the information that many Australian settlers were receiving about India in the 1870s um, it was, it was much, much less direct um, than certainly it was in the 1890s. And um, by the 1890s, of course, Australians, you know, they they've been linked up to telegraphic networks. Um, you know, commerce has sped up. Uh, just the magnitude of connections have has sped up as well. Um, and uh, and of course, you know, crucially, Australians um, for. Uh, I wouldn't say for the first time, but certainly for the first time in, in, in mass are actually able to access um, Indian voices themselves. Um, in the 1890s, there's a number of books published by um, Indian political leaders, um, Indian public intellectuals, um, Indian members of, say, the civil service, um, or you know ordinary Indians who are um, writing letters to papers, um, who are getting their voices published in imperial newspapers and then having that refracted um, through the kind of imperial news information space um, and indeed the international news information space um, to uh, to readers in Australia. Um, and I think what that does is that, you know, in, by the 1890s, because just such a greater wealth of, um, of commentary is available to Australian settlers um, and perhaps also because Australian settlers by the 1890s have grown um, both more I guess self-assured politically but also are in the midst of federation fever they're thinking about governance they're thinking about political norms they're thinking about institutions like citizenship and the role of race in human affairs in general and all of this uh, kind of thing you know many australians i think prove much more receptive to some of the arguments um, and often critical arguments made by uh, people of uh, british government in india and that for some Australians, at least for some Australian settlers, rather, um, it it uh, it tends um, to awaken a kind of critical consciousness that um, that there are vast differences um, in practices of empire, um, and Indians um, as uh, you know, historical you know, subjects of empire may not have um, may not have actually been uh, governed that well after all, and you know, can, putting myself in the minds of several uh, Australian settler critics um, of uh, British government in India. Um, and, you know, of course, there's there's genuine concern um, and there's kind of strategic concern. A number of Australians uh, become concerned that British styles of governance in India are actually harming the overall project of empire. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, many Australians are... Um, just outright opposed to imperialism in India, um, just full stop, as well. Um, and then you see this kind of curious uh, turn um, among some Australian public intellectuals in the 1890s, where, um, whereas you know many of them would have been happy to um, accept uh, British arguments for rule um, over India um, in the 1870s, very few of them come back to those same arguments um, in the 1890s and view them as justified, um, and some of them start to argue, well, you know, British and European styles of imperial rule in general, they're, they're these kind of old-fashioned, you know, they're not scientific, They're not, um, and they're not responsive to the actual conditions in India. Um, whereas, you know, Australian settlers, perhaps because they have extensive experience managing things like drought, or at least so they would claim, um, you know, perhaps we're in a better position um, to advise at least on the government of India. And so you see Indians also becoming this kind of foil almost um, amongst a number of Australian political leaders and even members of the uh, of the public writing letters um, into newspapers, especially around the times of the Indian famine in the 1890s, early 1900s, uh, where um, they're arguing essentially like, well, you know, these... Uh, Indian people deserve at least the same protections, uh, deserve to be governed well. Um, we know how to govern these kinds of conditions better even than British administrators um, uh, have proved to be. And therefore uh, it's not that we Australians are, um, are uh, uh, subjects any longer, it's that we have an equal share um, in this project of empire. Um, and really, Australia should kind of take charge of a lot of these um, a lot of these um, initiatives and all of that. And you know there's a little bit of public diplomacy here, too. When the Australian Commonwealth is inaugurated, um they specifically ask the Indian government whether or not you know they the Indian government would send a contingent um, of uh, of Indian soldiers um, to help inaugurate the Commonwealth to kind of participate in the in the public pageantry. Um, of the inauguration, and in my opinion, to signal precisely that, that, you know, when the Australians come together in Commonwealth, they're uh, coming together as uh, an imperial Commonwealth. They're taking up or taking seriously um, all of these uh, responsibilities that they perceive themselves to have now as a newly uh, sort of unified settler state in a world of empires. So there's a lot going on there, I think. Um and uh, it's, it's both, uh, it's, uh, I think, Australian int- settler interest in India is motivated as much by a genuine interest in understanding India as it is understanding how uh, India itself, uh, as part of a broader imperial project, can be essentially used um, for uh, the various tasks um, of Australian um, federation and its kind of broader imperial um, agendas as well.
0: So speaking of those broader imperial agendas, um, you've just sort of traced for us this transition as it were from sort of Australia as being a settler colony as part of the empire, as subjects, to being kind of more like, hang on, we can actually do some of this empireness um more directly ourselves. This then continues into an idea of an Australian empire. What purposes did this, you know, the idea of having an Australian empire seem to serve to Australians? And to what extent was this kind of one clear idea versus an evolving thing that changed over time?
1: Well, I would say what, it, it certainly evolved um, and uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I believe it evolved in, in several directions um, and... Uh, the directions that it involved that it evolved in were largely predicated by these kind of broader considerations of how to legitimize empire. Um, I think you know three three stages maybe become clear throughout this time period at least. You know, in, in the first case, um, and there's uh, a lot of literature kind of begins um, investigating Australia's. Um, ex continental expansionism um, this way by uh, exploring Australian efforts and really, you know, thinking of the, the Eastern colonies, Queensland, uh, New South Wales and Victoria's efforts to um, expand, claim some kind of authority over um, Fiji or Papua New Guinea and um, and many times we see that the arguments made by settler officials—they're made um, in to to justify their desires to expand uh, from the point of view of defense. Um, and this has been a, a large debate, I think, in in the field uh, in particular, because you know—is this—is this the rhetoric that one needs to use to kind of pitch a project of empire, even if it's a, a local? Project or um, was there a genuine belief that you know outlying islands taking control of them would somehow forestall um, you know a hostile actor from invading the colonies? There were some fears, I suppose you could say, of of, uh, of France doing so at at one time, and then Germany, of course, and then at one point the Russians were feared, and uh, and then of course as the nineteenth century. Um, turned into the 20th, um, many of those fears became uh, equipped with a kind of racial language and directed towards uh, China and then later Japan. Um, But I guess critics of that view, they often point to the fact that, well, a lot of the external statements about why Papua and why Fiji um, should be brought into the Australian fold um, may focus on defense, but a lot of the internal statements, um, you know, public meetings in Sydney, um, deliberations in executive councils and all of this focus primarily on, uh, on a trade and in particular getting access um, to labor. Um, and what's interesting, of course, is that those those very same polls are refracted um, in the public criticism um, amongst uh, imperial officials about um, whether or not to authorize Australian expansion in those directions. Um, you know, we see even, of course, the colonial office kind of famously um, denied uh, Australian requests, specifically Queensland's request, um, to, uh, to take New Guinea in 1883. Um, but I think what's often left out of that narrative is that so too did many of the Australian colonial premiers and colonial officials. And in fact, they did so because uh, they viewed um, Queensland's colonial record, um, specifically its uh, its record of, of horrific colonial violence, um, uh, certainly physical and, and cultural genocide against the indigenous peoples there and their management of um, indigenous uh, labor, both locally and imported from Pacific Islands, as just categorical disqualifiers for any kind of pretensions to empire. Um, and so you see, you know, in these debates, uh, there's certainly a teasing out of this notion that, you know, colonialism is a very domestic, violent and, and dishonorable uh, uh, stain, essentially, on the governance record. Of a lot of these places, even amongst Australian settler governments, whereas empire is something different. Empire entails, you know, ideal notions of good, uh, good gov- good governance. Excuse me, and um, and you know, living up to um, the, the the norms that um, many people in Australia and across the British world increasingly believed um, only white Britons could could truly up- uphold in the world. Um, but then, of course, fast forward to. Uh, the, uh, the late 1900s and, and, or late 1800s excuse me, in, in early 1900s um, where Australians are going through a similar kind of process um, in establishing once again uh, their colonial authority um, in Papua uh, by the way I feel like it's often forgotten that Queensland's attempts to annex um, Papua or at least subject to Um, to some kind of Australian colonial authority. They eventually succeeded. Um, And, you know, as evidenced by the fact that Papua became an Australian colony. Um, In these early 20th century moments, this very same debate um, came to the fore. Although, you know, for Australians, um, many of the people who promoted expansion, defense, of course, was was part of the equation. But um, the... um, uh, and and access to uh, Pacific Island labor um, was of interest to some, um, although it was essentially you know shut down for a good period of time by uh, the provisions that actually formed the new colonial government in, in Papua. Uh, many Australians seemed to think that just having empire itself um, was uh, a legitimate end. Um, they saw especially. Um, After Commonwealth, they saw empire as essentially a a stamp of equality, at least um, within the imperial system. Um, And equality, both in a kind of individual sense, um, you know, uh, we white settlers are now doing empire. We've sort of graduated out of uh, the the settler status and are now essentially co-equals with Britons on an individual level. Uh, But also collectively, you know, the Australian Commonwealth um, has become uh, an imperial commonwealth. It's become a power that's, you know, responsible for people outside of its own, uh, its own, uh, you know, racial composition, or so it would say. Uh, It's doing empire now. Um, And that, I think, is a very powerful lever within this, you know, emerging um, kind of dominionized British imperial world. Um, to claim uh, equal access to formation of imperial policy um, and formation of um, imperial institutions. For example, the common citizenship um, or the common status, right? So citizenship status that was proposed in 1911 um, that would effectively give all uh, white Britons resident in dominions um, the same civic status across the entire empire, Um of course, you know, I think these are, we're painting with with broad brushes here. I think if you ask, if we had the chance to ask individual Australian settlers, both in the 1880s and then in the early 1900s, right after the Commonwealth was formed in 1902, um, we might get, you know, as many answers as individuals we polled. Um, but I think, you know, the broad brush seems to be that you know, whereas before there were specific concerns like defense um, or labor, certainly by the 1900s, this notion of um, of yeah of equality of of partnership in empire, par- partnership in the project of empire, um, and perhaps as we were discussing relative to India, a leadership role in the conducting of of empire, not just Britain's empire, but empire as a kind of you know pursuit of civilization, I guess you could say. Um, certainly they would have said something like that uh, becomes the primary consideration. So those are the the broad, the, the high level contours, I would say.
0: Thank you for mapping them out for us. Um, you just detailed kind of how the claim uh, was made of legitimacy of sort of co-equal status, um, which of course is half of the thing, but if you're going to claim something, then someone else has to recognize your claim. How did this transformation, this expansion of Australian empire um, and sort of new conception of Australia within the realm of the British empire, how did that go down in Britain?
1: <laughs> well, um, for some people, it w- it went down easily. And for some people, um, they never completely swallowed it, I think. Um, the, uh, the telling... Sort of anecdote in, that immediately comes to mind um, is uh, is is from the the person of William McGregor who um, was a former uh, British administrator of the British New Guinea colony. Um, that essentially, you know, um, in in his mind at least, he was tasked with preparing um, that colony for Australian administration at a future time. Um, and I think you know that dynamic, first of all. Is a really interesting one. You know, I can't help but think of the same kind of logics logics of the imaginary waiting room of history playing out here. It's not as if Australian uh, officials were waiting to be admitted uh, to self-government necessarily, but certainly within the kind of you know an imperial frame, they were waiting to be admitted uh, to. Um, uh to the role of governors. Um and you know, we can tease that out more if we if we desire. Um at first William McGregor, he is very, very skeptical that any um any Australian settler is going to be able to administer a colony that is not, you know, a self governing um colony in which you know only white subjects are are enfranchised or even, you know, to be considered, to be honest. Um but, you know, about twenty years after he has this opinion, he uh he's writing the foreword uh to one of the first um to a book published by one of the first Australian administrators of the colony of Papua once it finally gets handed over, um, J. H. P. Murray, um, who articulates his own kind of vision of what a settler inspired um imperial um, experiment and governance should entail he writes in that foreword essentially a kind of you know <laughs> a, uh, a uh, I don't know exactly how to describe it but it, it's a compliment disguised as an insult or perhaps it's an insult disguised as a compliment whereas he says you know wherein he says essentially that I'm writing this foreword because I think essentially that um <laughs> You know, if if, uh, if Australians are going to govern Papua, um, this is the best they can do. And this person, Murray, is probably the best person for the job, even though I don't necessarily think they're going to succeed. And if I had thought otherwise, I wouldn't write this forward. Um, and I think, again, that kind of perfectly encapsulates the opinions of many. I think there are many people in uh, Britain, a lot of them officials who look at these kind of Australian assertions of colonial, of imperial equality, rather, and say, well, okay, I guess we should allow some part of it in as much as it's consistent with imperial interests. Uh, but many, I think, were very skeptical of that, uh, of the the claim to, to full equality. Um, and that, I think, is persistent throughout even up until the 1940s, you know, on the Permanent Mandates Commission, for example, there's a British member of the commission, Lord Lugard, who, um, in some ways, is actually inspired by people like Murray and um, Australian approaches to colonial governance, and in some ways, you know, quite critical of them. And um, and he never quite fully was willing to admit uh, that um, Australian colonial governmentalities uh, could achieve comparably, in his mind, good results as uh, British imperial governmentality. So there's always a little bit of the superiority-inferiority complex, I feel like, um, operating here. Um, and I think, you know, Australians recognize this. This is part and parcel of, uh, of, of many of the um, efforts, say, in the 1930s and the 1940s to um, more or less demand greater um, recognition. The Statute of Westminster, for example, in 1942, um, is a is a good example of maybe some of the legacies of this uh, um, of this kind of conflict. So,
0: and arguably, I mean, I think you could probably say that some of that inferiority uh, complex still can be seen today um looking at relations between australia and britain so a very interesting um sort of examination of where some of that comes from and kind of going hang on we think of that as being ages ago and yet um yeah no so another contribution of the book um I think we've done a decent job of a bit of a highlights tour of the many things that you cover. Of course, the book itself goes into way more detail about all of this. So for listeners who are intrigued, please do pick up the actual book that goes into much more detail. But Matt, before I let you go, um, would you mind sharing with us if there's anything you're working on um, now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you could give us a sneak preview of?
1: I would love to. Um, yes, and in, in fact, um, I, uh, I'm working on three three different things at the moment, um, and uh, I'll try to be brief in describing each. Um, but um, they're all, in a way, kind of related to this project uh, as well. So, you know, the first uh, there's been a long standing project that I've been working on with a colleague uh, Chris Holdridge um, about um, what uh, what we characterize essentially as the first global system of uh, mass military internment. Um, that was established during uh, the South African War uh, to house essentially half of the uh, of the Boer field army um, and uh, it was distributed all across the empire, which we think is interesting which led to all kinds of questions about you know the equality of imperial jurisdictions, whether or not you know these kind of nascent international humanitarian conventions like the hague conventions apply um, and uh, and specifically whether or not the system could be used to Um, surveil and uh, essentially kind of, you know, do a little bit of social engineering of the post-war colonial state, which we argue it was (laughs) effectively turned into a system for doing that. Um, So that's one project. Um, The second project, which I guess I alluded to um, in brief is, um, you know, looking a little bit more closely at the development of uh, the domain of, um, of quote unquote scientific governance that was developed by Australian colonial administrators in, Papua, um, I see this as a really interesting thing because it's the first, one of the first approaches to colonial governance that um, explicitly tries to align itself with emerging um, social sciences like anthropology and ethnography, um, and even um, approaches to law like economic positivism um, and all of that to essentially create more or less ideal administrations. Um, in colonial zones that many Europeans at least thought were peopled by people who um, were quote-unquote you know living in stone age conditions Um, and uh, what I think is fascinating about these kinds of um, experiments in colonial governmentality is that um, a lot of them are refracted and picked up um, in the administrations of class c mandates um, whose uh, administrators in in um in Europe feel very similarly about the state of subject peoples um and look at the legacies essentially of um of governance based on those kind of horrific and <laughs> really um appalling ways of understanding the, the political conditions of um, of subject peoples um and then i guess third and somewhat relatedly. Um, there are some explorations in the book about um, the use of, of big data um, to, say, model the weather, for example. Um, you know, the rise of colonial statistics went hand in hand with the projects of, you know, quote unquote scientific governance, um, not only within Australia but also um, in many of Australia's colonies and indeed many European colonies in the 20th century. Um, and it's, um, it's perhaps not realized that a lot of those statistics gathered at the time were turned into data sets for, um, and here we're going to take a sharp left turn, um, training uh, large AI models. Um, and there's a, a project underway, um, you know, amongst a lot of uh, digital humanities and um, kind of technology savvy historians looking at essentially decolonizing this kind of, uh, this kind of data, um, because after all, when we predict the weather these days, we're relying on data that was gathering, that was gathered rather in colonial contexts, um, in many other applications as well. So, um, I'm not sure which one will be finished first. They're all proceeding apace, and uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's a the difficult thing of deciding which one to work on is is made even more difficult by the fact that the world itself, you know, seems to um, urgently need answers to these kinds of questions as well. So um, it's a a little bit of a one step forward here, one step forward there um, endeavor, but uh, but they they proceed slowly but surely, I guess.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for previewing all three of them for us. Um, And while you take those steps forward, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Imperial Commonwealth, Australia and the Project of Empire, 1867 to 1914, published by Manchester University Press. Matt, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Well, once again, thanks. It's been a great pleasure. It's wonderful to, to talk about the book, its ins and outs. And um, and yes, I look forward to, to hearing what people think of it.